This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, Senator Maria Cantwell. She is the chair of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation, and she is the first woman to be in that role. In our wide-ranging discussion, we touch on everything from the Biden administration's infrastructure package to the We the People Act and the filibuster, and we discuss her many achievements over the course of her 20 years in the Senate. We also get her thoughts on the current state of the Republican Party. This was recorded live at noon on Friday, May 14th. So today we're honored to have Senator Maria Cantwell with us. She was first elected to the United States Senate in 2000, having previously served both in the United States House of Representatives and also in the Washington State Legislature in the House. Currently, she's the first woman chair of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation. She also sits on the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources, the Finance Committee, the Committee on Indian Affairs and the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Committee. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Stefan. Well, thank you so much, Kat. And uh, Senator Cantwell, thank you so much for joining us today. It is such an honor. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be with you guys. I could tell you that. Well, we're glad to have you with us. And as Kat was mentioning, people were very, very excited. As she said, we've received over 200 questions. There is so much to get to, so I'm inclined to dive right in. And the place I would like to start is by assessing where we are right now. We just passed the 100-day mark for the Biden administration and for the 117th Congress. And I'll just ask you, uh, what is your assessment of uh, what the Democrats have gotten accomplished so far in this time frame? Well, as you know, it was a very busy beginning of the year with both an impeachment trial and an insurrection. And uh, given that we still, though, basically were able to pass uh, a COVID response plan that literally represented what Democrats wanted to do to make sure that we were dealing with getting vaccines into people's arms, making sure that people had needed equipment that they needed at our at our hospitals and also made investments in broadband and education where people literally were left behind without access to education. These were things that our colleagues on the other side of the aisle didn't want to do last December. And so it literally put the onus on us to singularly get that legislation passed and make the needed investments in that. It also increased access to programs where people literally were left behind in the pandemic uh, the venue bill to basically help our, our music venues and theaters across the state, restaurant uh, bill, which helped to get restaurant revenue so we can reopen or hopefully sustain some of our restaurants. All of these things were things that our colleagues hadn't, they, they basically just kept saying, we're not going to go with that big a package for the American people. So that was really important to get done. And I'm proud that, that we got that done. And I think that that's paying dividends. And it basically kept people who literally um, lost their jobs or were laid off. It kept them in the, uh, the ability to stay in their home, provide health care, put food on the table. And that's what we wanted to see. And we're glad we got that done. I think there's some other things that I view as sea changes, the way we're doing government, particularly after the last four years. And I just have to tell you what a relief it is to have a, a new White House and a new administration. I can't tell you. It's like been four years of a lot of battle and trying to hold the line against things that, you know, we don't like, like Pebble Mine in Alaska and various things. So 
The fact that we now have the first ever indigenous person to head the interior department was a big fight. And I was glad to be part of getting Deb Howland uh, an interior secretary. I'm glad we got Pete Buttigieg, the first openly gay member to head the Department of Transportation, which also basically is a, is a sea change of policy and what we can do to move our transportation system forward, but make for a cleaner, greener um, transportation system. That was a, a, a big sea change. We got an um, AAPI hate crimes bill passed. And listen, there's a lot we need to do on hate crimes in general, but getting that legislation passed and out of the United States Senate, uh, very important to do, but there's so much more to do. And so we're gonna talk about the more stuff that we need to do. So I'm just saying that here we are um, in, the, in the first few months, and now we're working very hard on infrastructure and the issues that still plague us from the economic downturn. And, and yet with an eye towards the future too, what sure. do we want to do that's very different? So a lot of different issues that we think were neglected, whether it's immigration reform or you know investments, like I said, in the cleaner climate and moving forward on our healthcare, all of that will be in this next package, which literally we're starting to mark up next week. And so I can't even tell people how fast this is moving, but it's moving very fast. So I guess I would say that um, you know, given all the circumstances of the beginning of the year, uh, we're ushering in real change, and I'm glad that we're able to do that, but we have a lot more to do. You've given such an extraordinary overview of the first 100-plus uh, days. There's so much that we are going to come back to and talk about, but you mentioned infrastructure, and certainly I would like to uh, proceed with our conversation there, particularly in your capacity as chair of the Commerce Committee, because I want to get your thoughts on some very specific things. So, you know, we've heard a lot about how much the package will encompass. We've certainly heard about the price tag, but we haven't heard as much about how things should be prioritized to drive things like economic growth. And I know that this is on your mind. You spoke recently at the Brookings Institution about this very thing. What are some of the things that you think we need to prioritize in this package? Well, I obviously want infrastructure, but I want a, a cleaner, greener future too. And so to me, I look at this as a big opportunity to say, what can we do to further in our transportation sector, uh, create cleaner forms of transportation? In um, the past, I, you know, uh, authored the first tax credits for um, uh, electric vehicles, and now we have thousands of them, you know, in the marketplace. Uh, we offered tax incentives for biofuels, which now we use um, as, as opposed to other forms of fossil fuel. And the big thing that I think we have now in the transportation sector is the continued electrification of our transportation sector, but really looking at um, the bigger trucks and maritime sector, and what can we do to make them greener and cleaner for the future? So we're going to be prioritizing that. As the uh, as the Commerce Committee looks at this, one of the things that the Trump administration tried to roll back are the CAFE standards, particularly as it relates to big heavy-duty trucks. The committee has oversight over um, uh, fuel efficiency standards, and we're going to try to implement better fuel efficiency standards across all transportation. You know. Uh, autos and trucks and to make sure that we're reducing our carbon there as well. So uh, do we want to make infrastructure investments? Uh, we can see in Puget Sound, we need to make infrastructure investments, but we're also trying to say, we want money there for um, what we are calling salmon infrastructure. Our transportation system 
creates a lot of pollution that impacts those, our streams and impacts our environment. We don't want to try to chase this later. We want money up front in the planning process so that whatever we plan has less impact on uh, our salmon population and to look at trying to remove these culverts and things that have caused a lot of damage uh, to our region when it comes to uh, infrastructure. So those are a few of the priorities that we're, that we're talking about in an infrastructure bill. But as you know, we've had a big conversation about infrastructure to include other things like healthcare, and uh, making sure that uh, broadband and the rest of our framework is there too. So um, I think to me, uh, we're also talking about R&D, uh, research and development as part of our infrastructure. So it is a pretty broad term, but I just mentioned a few things that our committee um, is, is dealing with and what we, what we care about in Puget Sound. So one of the things that we have facing us is we're almost like, at capacity already in so many fronts uh, to moving people and goods and services. So we want Sound Transit to receive its funds without another boost. There are some projects that literally wouldn't be funded because of the cutbacks and COVID. I mean, literally COVID caused less revenue and now they have to look at projects that they might not do. And we have to finish that system. We need the ability to move uh, people in a mass transit way uh, through our state and clearly want to continue to have other uh, modes like Amtrak and the possibility of moving more people by high speed rail in the future. Thank you so much for touching on some of the things that will impact us here in the state. And you certainly touched on some of the, the, the aspects of the climate crisis. And, you know, we know that you fought for uh, the climate virtually your entire uh, electoral career. We very much appreciate the work that you've done on our behalf here in the state and certainly uh, the work that you did on behalf of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, preventing uh, drilling there. I'll ask you something very specific. So this really stood out to me when Biden did his uh, address to Congress. Um, he is uh, tying the climate crisis uh, to jobs and job creation. I think his words were jobs, jobs, jobs. Uh, if he is successful in doing this, if he's able to create millions of green jobs, I wonder, is this a game changer? Will people then look at the challenge of taking on the climate differently? Well, they should already. <laughs> so the last 10 to 15 years, and besides the tax credits for automobiles. We worked on tax incentives for um, wind and solar and also on energy efficiency, which is something we kind of lead on in the Northwest. If you think about the bullet center building, that's like the smartest building, or you go over to Spokane, they have a corridor now with Eastern Washington University where they're trying to build a net zero block. So it's kind of weird. You wouldn't think that we would be such experts. Like if you had cheap hydro already, you would think why why keep going? But we do, and we are. And so we have pioneered all of this energy efficiency, and we're going to keep going on it. And so it really, you know, we have to think of this as something where individual homes will be selling power back to the grid when they've, you know, um, not used it. And I think what what we have to look at is, okay, what happened in that transformation? So literally when I got here, coal was 50% of our national electricity grid. Now it's 19. And yet, did we really, you know, did that cause our economy to crumple? No, I'd say we're better off. And you look at the millions of jobs that were created in that process. So the next phase, even more jobs are to be created. So I always thought that that would be our proof point. 
Could we make it through the transition without really hurting our economy? And I would say we have. And now there's much more to unleash in the delivery of a cleaner energy economy. And so we should move forward more rapidly. And we should use what we've done so far as a proof point to that. I am very proud of the work that is done here in Washington state, both by uh, legislators like you, but also at the state level as well. I think we are a model for the rest of the nation. Something else oh, yeah. I, want, I, I wanted to bring uh, this up with you um, uh, it, because this has to do with one of the subcommittees that you had. You are pushing for local broadcast and print media to be considered critical infrastructure uh, that needs to be preserved. I find this to be incredibly important. I find it very alarming that Seattle is a one newspaper town when we used to have several. Uh, I find it very alarming that the Cleveland Plain Dealer is now gone. Um, uh, why have you decided to take this on? Well, you know, uh, when I was a kid, my grandfather was a steer typer, which meant he actually laid the linotype for newspapers. And, uh, you know, we would go to these picnics about, you know, the fourth estate, which I was like, what's that? You know, I don't even, what are you talking about? But then I realized that the media plays a role in ho holding everybody accountable through the transparency of information. As somebody said, they're like, they hang a lantern on issues and let the light shine through. Well, now we have less and less of that. And if you want to, I mean, can you imagine having gone through the Enron crisis without local journalism? Could you imagine going through, you know, any of the last four years without a lot of local journalism? And yet we had a lot of consolidation and a lot of misinformation, really a lot of inaccurate information. So the only way you can take that on is if you have a multiplicity of voices and those people counter that, publicize it and get the public you know, to understand the lies or misinformation. So we have to have trust and we have to have local media, which really is the most trusted brand today. Unfortunately, I think unfair market competition by some of the big tech companies where literally instead of linking to say the plane dealer or a website, they took a headline from the plane dealer and kept people on Google's website and basically, you know, didn't share the revenue. And the consequence is it continued to chip away. Now, I do think that there are models like podcasts and other things that are emerging. And it is, uh, we need DOJ to investigate this. And I do think that there will be new models, but we don't want to see, we've already lost 70% of the workforce in local news. We can't afford to lose more. So um, we, we helped with the uh, COVID package to sustain them, but we'll have to do more here. Uh, we have to have diversity of voices and we have to be able to hold misinformation accountable. Here, here. And uh, yeah, and you, you bring in social media as a part of all of that. And that I think certainly jumps uh, to the forefront of many people's minds. Um, and that is a, a discussion that I think we could probably spend the rest of the hour on. Well, I, will just, I will just say about that. We are going to have some hearings this summer on this subject. So we'll keep you informed. So Please. it will be about you know, uh, journalism and trust and privacy and, you know, all the things that were, you know, that are challenging to us today as it relates to the uh, online environment. We would love to have you back to discuss that if you would be willing to. Um, yep. I, I will also mention that, uh, you know, and, and you're very well aware of this, we've heard a lot of debate about what else can be considered critical infrastructure. Can it include things like childcare and the care economy generally? What is your opinion there? Yes, it should. It definitely should. 
our economy doesn't work if you don't have access to, to health care or access to child care. And the COVID pandemic proved that. If you look at just the differential on men and women and who got hurt the most in the in the downturn, women. So the men, okay, no offense to the men, but a lot of them are like, yeah, this wasn't so bad and I got to work from home. The women are juggling all of these things and definitely see the lack of childcare and healthcare. So one of the healthcare things we're really trying to tackle is in the area of long-term care, where we have a population bubble reaching us, right? More and more people living longer, baby boomers reaching retirement and the challenges of that uh, not having a workforce. So. I'm very proud that we were able to author in the Affordable Care Act a plan that incented states to keep families in their home longer by having a home health care workforce and paying them uh, a good wage. And so we got 20 states to start doing that. So now we want to continue that. So do I believe that it is essential in the present day United States to have uh, long-term care options and having people have, uh, have so that they can juggle their lives. Yes, I definitely think, and I think the same on, on childcare. I'm hoping that we will, in this look at healthcare in the infrastructure, again, look at ways to drive down the cost of healthcare too. While I think we've increased access with the affordable healthcare plan, I still think there are things to do on the affordability, both for uh, prescription drugs and for um, just uh, access to health care. Well, certainly, please hold on to that thought because we had an audience question about that. But, you know, I just want to ask you generally about the process of working with the GOP in this process around the infrastructure package because you've been a part of a series of White House meetings with Republican senators to discuss possible bipartisan compromises on infrastructure. Um, my understanding is that one of the points of discussion has to do with the way that the package is paid for. So Biden wants to pay for it through raising the corporate tax rate and increasing taxes on the wealthy. Republicans are advocating for what are called user fees. So this is things like gas taxes, which will uh, hit low and middle income people. Um, where do you where do you land on this? Well, I didn't support lowering the corporate tax rate to 21 percent. In fact, I, Bernie Sanders and I took on Ted Cruz and, and Tim Scott in a debate on CNN about this and tried to make the point this was like, I mean, plus, not only did they lower the corporate rate in our state, they raised taxes on a lot of us to pay for it. I was like, how is that fair? That's not fair. And so I think the president is uh, you know, has a proposal that is helping us get back to a, a stable number. And so I I support the president's concept on this. I do think, you know, there might be other things the Republicans put on the table that we might want to do. But right now, my sense is where the Republicans are going to go is to go for a smaller package. And I think the problem there is we know in Puget Sound, we know all over the state how little we've invested in infrastructure. We see how it plagues us today. And so um, I think this is about probably a you know, once in 20 year, once in 25 year opportunity to make the right kind of investment. So I, I want it to be a big package. I don't want to take us too far off the trail here, but you mentioned that there were a couple of things that you felt that uh, the Republicans were bringing to the table that you might be in agreement with. What are they? Well, I'm a big fan of moving product um, freight, for example. You know, we're a big port state. And so we got to so the amount of traffic increase has been voluminous. And so I would certainly increase more money for things that would help get congestion through our ports. I don't know if anybody knows the Lander Street Bridge, but that's an example of what we got built 
by creating uh, a freight program modeled on what we did in the state of Washington. Uh, but now we also have so much train traffic. We have a lot of unsafe at grade crossings. And so uh, my colleague and I, uh, Roy Blunt from Kansas, like they're a state on the Mississippi River. They get the same thing. They got all this congestion coming in and all this traffic. So he's willing to do something about making at grade crossings safer. It sounds very, uh, you know, inconsequential until I guarantee you, like everybody on this call can probably tell me some story here, you know, where I live in Edmonds, literally the train blocked the ferry terminal and a woman was on board the ferry and pregnant. They had to crawl through one of the, one of the rail cars to get to her because the train was stuck there for hours and we had no way of wow. getting to that woman. So, so those are things that, you know, I don't really think of them as big R or D issues. I just think they're, they're things that people are, are willing to uh, step up and, and do. I want to just pivot very quickly and ask you about the politics of this, because I know that you grew up in a working class family of Democrats and you know, the working class used to be the core of the Democratic base uh, once upon a time. And I think some people are cautiously optimistic that if the Democrats can keep delivering on things like the relief package, like infrastructure, on child care, that we may have a chance of winning some of these uh, the, these workers back. What do you make of that calculus? Well, it, it, first of all, it breaks my heart that we don't do a better job at communicating about this. I think, you know, we should just say we want to have wage growth. We want wage growth. We want policies that are going to drive wage growth. So we, you know, we, we know who's gotten better, better off in the last several years, but have average Americans had wage growth? My guess is their healthcare costs went up, their other cost of livings, but did their wages go up? And so again, back to that tax proposal that lowered the corporate tax rate down to 21%, this was supposed to be some panacea to help with that. Did it? No. I mean, it probably went into dividends or, you know, I'm not even sure what it went into, but it didn't go back into skilling and training a workforce and raising a wage of people. So to me, I think we need to speak to the policies that are going to put food on the table, they're going to raise wages, give people access to health care, lower their you know, cost of living, and continue to move forward. In the end, I think they will support us on a broad range of issues, like dealing with climate and, and, and making sound policy for the future. I just think that you know, as uh, we have to talk more about what is our strategy for the future and how do we have wage growth. Well, one of the things that you support is the PRO Act. So I want to get your thoughts on that. This would, among other things, get rid of anti-union right-to-work laws. I will just note for you that a number of state uh, labor leaders listening to this show, they're very enthusiastic about your support. We know there are three Democrats right now who are supposed uh, who are opposed. Mark Kelly, uh, Mark Warner, and Kirsten Cinema. She sits on your Commerce Committee. Have you been talking to these senators uh, about the PRO Act, and what arguments have you been making? Well, I think, okay, go back to my grandfather, who was the steer typer. Um, he had a good labor wage job. So when it came time for me to go to college and came from a working class family, the fact that he had that good labor job meant that he had saved a little bit of money and that and a Pell Grant got me to college. So I am all in on labor wages. Why? And labor organizations, and labor structure, because labor helps set a higher wage for all of us. And if you have any doubt, even the state of Missouri, which had a Republican governor and rolled back 
their um, their ability to uh, you know they passed a right to work. They were able to defeat that at the polls the next year because the people in Missouri understood that without that ability to have somebody help setting a wage, you were going to continue to have erosion on even their wages. And that's what I think you need to uh, emphasize in the PRO Act. There's other aspects to it of collective bargaining, the right classification of workers, all of those things. But I can just tell you personally in my life, it made a difference to have a little bit more money to save because in that generation, we went from working class to middle class. That's what labor jobs help you do. It helps you go from working class to middle class because we pay a decent wage. As a proud union member, I will I will back up everything you've just said. Uh, are you making any headway either with the three senators that I mentioned or any GOP colleagues on these arguments? Well, I we will see, but I'm I'm we haven't gotten to that. You know, it's not been you know on the floor as of yet. Yeah. But um, I think that these are I think particularly Joe Manchin should respond to that. He has a lot of uh, labor workers in his state. I would think that. If we make these arguments to him, I, I, I would think that he would support that. Um, I you know, haven't had a chance to talk to Cinema uh, about that particular issue, but look, if you go to her website and see when she first campaigned, she's talking about the same thing I just talked about, growing up in a working class family. So I'm pretty sure she will get, now I don't know what her, her issues are as it relates to the PRO Act. I haven't, but I will. I will ask her next week and I'll report back to you guys about what she says. But I know this, she has a very passionate video where she's talking about growing up in a working class family. And if that's the case, then I'm pretty sure she should be supportive of uh, these ideas about instituting structures that help you keep, keep everybody's wages high. It is my understanding that uh, Senator Joe Manchin has come out in support of the PRO Act. I, I could be wrong on this, so somebody check my math on this. I also want to talk with you about S-1. This is the For the People Act and also S-4, the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, both of which you co-sponsored. Thank you for that. Um, these, as you know, are major priorities for Indivisible. Um, it is my understanding that markup began on Tuesday on S-1, and uh, Senate Democrats, I believe, uh, held a caucus meeting about it yesterday, Thursday. What can you tell us about where things stand right now on S-1? Well, I can just tell you in that discussion, I was first person in the caucus on my feet to talk about how we needed to do more because I listened to my colleague, Raphael Warnock, who I serve with on the Commerce Committee. And he basically said, we need the John Lewis bill too. So the fact that the Supreme Court struck down the protections of us, the federal government, to mandate that these states meet a standard has to be done. I'm all for S-1, I want S-1, but I want the John Lewis Act too. We can't afford to have some state disenfranchise us. If we're voting for president of the United States in Washington, but some other state has deleterious laws that basically disenfranchise people, how is that not affecting us? We're voting for the presidency of the United States. Sure. So I believe we should reinstitute what the, what the court struck down and give the federal government the ability to make sure that uh, that our all of our civil liberties and constitutional rights are upheld to have free and fair elections. And voter suppression has no place in the United States of America.
Well, so this brings us to the issue of the filibuster, because we know that there's no way to get to 60 on S1 or S4. So I just want to ask you about this very briefly. So last Thursday, you said in a tweet, quote, we cannot let Senate procedure stand in the way of important issues like voting rights. I supported Senator Merkley's talking filibuster proposal in 2011, and I still support it today. First and foremost, thank you uh, so much for that statement and also for advocating for voting rights. Just for those who may not be familiar, can you explain what the talking filibuster is and how it's different from what we currently have. Well, God love Jeff Merkley because he's put a lot of work into this over a number of years. So give him credit for being uh, very diligent on this and I appreciate it. So now, you know, when somebody wants to hold up legislation, you don't necessarily see them on the Senate floor. And what um, Jeff Merkley's legislation says is you'd have to be present. If you want to continue to hold up the process, you have to be present to you know, extend this 60 hours of debate, basically, that would, would be there. And so it would be a way for people not to just take an easy shot on something that they disagree with, but to physically be there you know, to, uh, to speak their piece. Uh, but at the end of the process, if nothing was resolved during that long period of debate of people being physically present there, which is a little bit of a governor, if you will, because um, just think about it, you know, people want to get things done. And so if somebody's going on and on and on, sometimes it leads to somebody coming and saying, okay, what can we do? What can we compromise on? Uh, it, it could lead to some, some people coming to an agreement earlier and not just continuing to go. I've had, you know, two things I filibustered, uh, you know, in my career and um, both of them I felt worked out pretty well to get change. One was an, I didn't think we had a strong enough derivative reform proposal after the big debacle in you know 2009 and even though the democrats were proposing something i didn't think it was strong enough i thought we'd have another wall street meltdown so i ended up forcing us to get a stronger bill so that was good and uh you know an, another time where i ended up getting a compromise at the 11th hour so in merkley's case at the end of uh, merkley's provision if you don't have resolution then you would have a vote based on a 50 vote uh, threshold. So that's what the Merkley proposal is. And so it basically would shift the dynamic in um, the decisions. Well, to a 50 vote threshold. So at a meeting on April 20th, Senator Merkley said that he now feels that the filibuster must be removed completely by this summer or, quote, it will be too late. Do you agree with that? I don't know what the time frame is, but do I think you can let states suppress the right to vote? No. So to me, that'll be the governing thing. I, I, I don't think you can let democracy, you know, be taken down state by state. So you know, to me, these are important policies, and I think we should move forward. So I don't know what that time period is, um, but I, I know we can't afford to have. Um, people ignore what are constitutional rights. It just seems hard to move forward knowing that there's no way to get to 60 on this. And so unless the filibuster is removed, it's it, it's hard to imagine a scenario. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm just going to kind of drop my card here and tell you what I'm hearing. Um, yeah. I'm hearing that indivisibles are concerned. They are angry. They are scared. I'm scared that everything you say, the Republicans are rigging things not just to suppress the vote, but also to allow themselves to literally determine our elections. And that if we if we are unable to stop them with something like the For the People Act, that we stand 
to lose our democracy for uh, a generation or longer. What, what are your well, thoughts for on the that? People, for, for the people, is S1 is, is definitely a lot about campaign finance reform and public financing, both of which I'm adamantly for. Sure. And, uh, you know, when I first ran campaign, you know, was the first person to support not taking money from these big super organizations and helped literally give uh, McCain-Feingold the necessary vote to actually get passed. So I was proud of that. So I support that. But I, but I think the John Lewis Act is much more specific in trying to say we need to uh, reinforce the fact that we have, a, we have a federal role in making sure that elections are run and that people aren't disenfranchised. So I personally think that um, you know, do do we have a lot of debate here about what's going, what would happen in two years if we weren't in control and it was a 50 vote Senate? Yes. <laughs> do I worry about that? Yes, I do. I, you know, you think about that for a while, but I worry more about the uh, state by state basically saying you can't have a drink of water in a voting line. I mean, what's well, wrong with people to think that you can't give somebody in a voting line a drink of water? And this is just out and out, con right, continuation of very bad voter suppression things that have happened for decades. And we have to stand up to it. And maybe standing up to it, they'll they'll pass a federal law and help us out. But if they don't, we need to make sure that we're doing our, our duty. When you say we're doing our duty, I guess I'm coming up a little bit short because I don't know what that would look like. It seems like the only two bills that can really address what's John happening Lewis, at the state. John, oh, oh, the, oh, a change, a change. With, with, with Merkley, a change a passage of Merkley, yeah, passage of. Merkley. Well, so so one of the things that uh, your colleague Senator Feinstein uh, has come out in support of is a carve out uh, on the filibuster for just for democracy related uh, legislation. Is that something that you would consider? Um, mm, I mean, I like Merkley in a more comprehensive way, but I guess I would. I mean, if we could get the votes for that, and we could save you know, you know, Georgia from disenfranchising people. Yeah, I might do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, because as I say, and I'll just, uh, I, I will just underscore what I said before. I think people's concerns are that the federal government and, and the two bills that we've talked about, S1 and S4, are the only two that seem to be the bulwarks to stop what is happening in these state legislatures that are passing so many voter suppression bills. And so um, I, I will just say, I appreciate so much your work on co-sponsoring S1 and S4. Um, and uh, before we move on to audience questions, uh, and we're kind of running up against the clock here. I do want to get your thoughts on the state of the Republican Party generally um, right now. You, of course, know that we had an attack on our nation's capital. Um, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland called it the most dangerous threat to our democracy, and we know that it was inspired by Trump's big lie. And now we can see things are accelerating. Um, on, on Wednesday, the House GOP voted to remove Liz Cheney from leadership for Telling the truth that Biden won the election, um, there are now GOP members of Congress who are open conspiracy theorists. They are harassing other members. And of course, all this, in addition to just the voter suppression that we have discussed, how concerned are you about the, the direction of the Republican Party right now? I'm, I'm very concerned about it. Um, it's, um, you know, I, I grew up, um, you know, where on election day you stayed home and you worked at the polls and you, you know, worked along the side of other people who were also trying to get the vote out, right? So you saw that there were people who may not agree with you that were also trying to get the vote out and and you thought that's what 
you know, being in a democracy was all about. And I do worry that uh, the Trump impact continues today in the Republican Party. And I don't think it's good for our nation. I think these ideas, the fact that, you know, is painful as the insurrection was, uh, to me, the most frustrating and just disturbing thing is when we were escorted back into the chamber that night to finish our work and certify the election, we had to be marched back in by, you know, the National Guard. And I thought, you know, um, my father fought in World War II and they fought for the freedoms and to fight, you know, oppression from a Nazi regime. And I thought this is what he and other generations helped establish for us free and fair elections, the right to have a democracy and to go to work in a place where you don't have to be ushered in by the military. And yet here we were, we erased that that night. We had to be ushered in by the military to go and cast a vote. And it changed what America was in that moment. And it, I thought it had erased a lot, a lot of what we consider to be free and fair elections and the transition of power. And it really undermined what a lot of people have fought for in the history, including all our military had fought for in our country's history. So I, I, um, I think the Republicans need to get a, a grip on that and to understand that they, they put a dent in, in, in us, the United States, by allowing that to happen, by not repudiating it, and here, here for those who did repudiate it, here, here. And, you know, the fact that we had two people from our state who repudiated it. So now to retaliate against these people and to continue to foment this, and listen, it's not just fomented here, it's fomented in our communities, intimidation in our communities. You know, I have family and friends that have been in intimidated in, in the town of Snohomish. We've seen it, you know, in other parts of our state and this, the, you know, democracy is about having the free and, and, and fairness to have an expression and not to have, you know, people try to use, uh, you know, a military force against people's right to expression. And so I, I don't know what we do about it. Um, you know, we try to work across the aisle with people who we think, um, you know, are going to uphold those values. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget when I was running last time, somebody in Olympia said to me, Maria, thank you for working with Lisa Murkowski. And thank you for not working with Lisa Murkowski. And I said, oh, okay. And they were like, yeah, no, I get the difference. Sometimes you work with her, you know, on something, you know, like, you know, um, you know, whatever education, but then other times you disagree with her on Anwar. And so they really meant it. Thank you for doing both. And I think we have to find those Republicans who are willing to cross the aisle and work on things and are willing to stand up and tell the truth. Well, there at present anyway, are more of them in the Senate than in the House. I, I, I think it's fair to, to say. And I, I honestly, I cannot end our portion of the conversation on a down note. So I will ask you, what are you optimistic about right now? And, and what help could you use from us indivisibles? Well, I'm always optimistic about our state. I have to say that. So am I. Uh, here, here. Um, yeah. We're a very innovative state. Um, we're very vocal. We think a lot about these issues. We participate in them. Um, there's hardly an issue that I don't work on that isn't inspired by something we've already done in the state of Washington. 
And so that includes the grassroots organization that you represent today. And so I, when I see that, I'm, I'm always inspired and I always think we'll figure this out. And, you know, maybe we'll figure it out a little sooner, you know, than, than the rest of the country. And then we'll be back here trying to, you know, communicate to them. I always say there's no magic seeping down from the dome of the Capitol. It's, you know, it's out somewhere else. And it's my job to help bring that here and, and bring those issues to the forefront. But I'm always inspired um, by the environmental leadership of our state the you know focus on uh, trying to uh, diversity the two laws that we've already passed both on um, on gun issues and on uh, police reform I try to advocate for those things nationally I keep saying I don't know why in God's name we don't have an extreme person law nationally if, if we and other states and I remind our colleagues that these were voted on uh, by initiative and passed by you know, many people in our state. So I, that's what inspires me is, is uh, and, and I'm optimistic because I think that that voice, I think our voice keeps getting louder and louder. I would agree with that completely. I, again, very, very proud of the work that we do here in the state. We have some audience questions. Um, I'm going to ask a couple. Tommy, I'm going to keep my eye on the chat bar. You let me know when we're at last question. Um, the first question has to do with privacy. This comes from John Pincus. He is our resident privacy expert. Uh, do you plan to reintroduce your Federal Consumer Online Privacy Rights Act? And also, what do you think of the prospects for the Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act that you co-sponsored? Um, I'm, we're going to turn to privacy this summer and I hope, so we introduced, we tried to negotiate with the Republicans and they got, we kind of got a framework, but we both introduced our bills to kind of show the differences and basically also show where maybe we could get, um, a compromise. So I, we're going to return to that and, uh, it's going to be one of our, you know, top priorities. We think it's incredibly important to have privacy rights in the United States of America. We think that the information age is gonna continue to roll out and without uh, consumers having those privacy rights that are strongly enforced by the Federal Trade Commission, that we're going to continue to be vulnerable to real harm and real challenges. So we're we're going to work on that. And I think the other bill you're referring to is the one that allows for, um, I don't know if it's collective bargaining, um, if that's Klobuchar's bill, but anyway, um, you know, there are other legislation that we're going to incorporate into our um, privacy discussions. We know that this has been enormously important to you, and we uh, really appreciate that. Uh, and I, we had, I will tell you, we had a ton of questions about the Snake River Dam. Uh, I will read one in full. Uh, Joseph Bogart is the executive director of Save Our Wild Salmon Coalition. And he asks, scientists have told us for decades that restoring the Snake River, removing its four federal dams, and replacing their services with alternatives is essential to protect wild salmon from extinction. This is also a human rights and justice issue for tribes like the Nez Perce. Uh, Congressman Mike Simpson of Idaho has a proposal to eliminate the four lower dams. Um, I believe you and other lawmakers, including Governor Inslee, uh, there was an announcement in the Times this morning uh, saying that you support an alternate plan. Can you talk about that? Well, what, what I'm saying is, do I want to diversify off of hydro? Yes. Why? Because it gives us more options. And with climate change happening and less and less snowpack, you know, we're more vulnerable. So being 70% reliant on hydro gives us a lot less options. So if we diversify off of hydro, so that means more investments in renewable 
energy, um, more investments in uh, making the grid smarter and more intelligent, making battery technology give us that flexibility. Uh, the future will, will help us in uh, being able to diversify. Right now, uh, Puget Sound really is a salmon production powerhouse. And we really have impacted salmon production by those culverts I was mentioning at the beginning of the show. So right now, um, you know, Mr. Simpson's, uh, Congressman Simpson's, you know, has a, a conceptual outline. He doesn't have legislation. I don't know if he's planning on introducing legislation or trying to move that through the House. But I know we're starting to mark up the infrastructure next week. And so something with a $32 billion price tag that's not really even legislation is uh, we need to focus on what can we get. So I'm going to try to get that energy diversification in the bill. I'm going to try to get salmon habitat recovery in the bill. I'm going to try to get money to take care of those culverts and also to try to get a more science approach to how to approach uh, salmon recovery in the West that can lead to more discussion on this issue for the future. We have time for one more question, and this has to do with carbon pricing. It's a two-parter. Ellie asks, and we had a lot of questions about this for you, what are the prospects of getting carbon pricing legislation through the Senate uh, with this legislative session? And then Chris, as a follow-up, asks, how do you feel about a carbon tax with a direct dividend payment so that they can tolerate the pass-through increases? What are your thoughts here? Well, I introduced a cap and dividend bill uh, years ago with Susan Collins. In fact, it still remains the only proposal that has had bipartisan support. Uh, I've tried to get Susan Collins to reintroduce it, but I haven't been successful yet. But I actually think it's the right move. I think the cap and dividend approach basically took the like 2000 highest, biggest polluters and basically uh, put a price on that and then used the money, which was uh, billions of dollars of revenue to do mitigation, adaptation, R&D, and to keep consumers whole. We had research that showed the majority of consumers in the United States would be kept whole. So we thought this was the right plan. At the time, you know, Larry Summers was in the White House. He kind of shut it down, didn't think that we could distribute the money back to consumers. I look at where we are today with the, with the um, uh, COVID checks that came to people. I'm pretty sure we figured out where everybody was and they got their COVID checks. So I'm pretty sure we could do a dividend back to uh, the majority of Americans and keep them whole. So um, whether this has a serious chance this time, I mean, we're going to talk about it. I have no idea whether, I just don't know. I mean, um, I hope we have a big discussion about this. I hope the Biden administration has a big discussion about it, but I do think it would ease the future. I think we can see where we're going with the transformation. Like I said earlier, we have about 10 or 15 years of transformation, this big shift off of coal, and we can see what we were able to accomplish. So it should give us the confidence to move um, you know, in even more bold ways, but I just don't know. We'll have to see where the votes are on this. I, like I said, I can't get a Republican right now to support that yeah. proposal, but we're not giving up yet. Before we let you go, I just have to tell you, in my research, I discovered that you are a fellow karaoke fanatic. And so I just have to ask you, what's your jam? What's your go-to jam? Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, I'm a big blondie Deborah Harry person. So. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Well, my so I'm, a little, I'm a little old school punk, if you will. But I, you probably wouldn't know that about me. But yeah. 
I love that. I love to hear that about you. That's wonderful. My, I'll go even more old school. My, my go-to is uh, Try a Little Tenderness by Otis Redding. So, oh, so okay. someday when all things are yeah, possible. Just to, be, just to be clear, I literally can't sing. I'm not a good, I mean, <laughs> my, mom is a, my mom is a beautiful voice and sang for a long time in Edmonds with a singing group, but I didn't inherit those genes. It's all about salesmanship. You just got to get up okay. there and rock out, right? Okay. Well, okay. Senator Cantwell, this has been such a delight. Uh, we are so, so grateful for you to take the time. And again, we would love to have you come back and join us again. Uh, really, again, thank you for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. Absolutely. Thank you all. Thank you for your advocacy. Proud of you guys. And that is it for today. My thanks to Louise Pathé, Kevin Jones, and Robin Gittleman. Also, a big special thank you to Nina Musavi, Will Casey, John Pincus, Chantel Thurman, and Tommy Bauer. Kat Pipkin is the producer of the Town Hall series. Links to everything we talked about can be found at indivisiblepodcast.org. The email for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.